Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Pelvic Health Podcast. This is Lori Forner here. We have an excellent episode today with Michelle Lyons. So if you don't know who she is, she's a chartered physiotherapist specializing in integrative women's health. Her clinical toolbox includes over two decades in pelvic health physiotherapy, yoga, Pilates, nutrition, health coaching, and mindfulness as a therapeutic intervention. She teaches nationally, internationally, and online, and is on the faculty of Herman and Wallace, the Pelvic Rehab Institute, the Integrative Women's Health Institute, and she's the clinical consultant for Burrell Education, the global leader in continuing education in women's health for fitness professionals, massage therapists, and clinicians worldwide. So essentially, she does everything. Anyway, as well as her specialist physiotherapy courses on pelvic health and oncology rehab, her speaking invitations include the International Pelvic Pain Society Conference, the International Continent Society, the British Pelvic Floor Society, the Woman on... The Women on Fire Summit, the Pelvic Obstetric and Gynecological Physiotherapy Association, the Pelvic Health Summit, the Closed Lymphedema Conference, and the Chartered Physiotherapists in Women's Health and Continence. When she's not treating patients, teaching, or traveling, she enjoys life at home in rural Ireland with her family, her menagerie of animals, and her well-stocked bookcases. In today's episode, we talk about endometriosis. So we talk about what it is, how common it is, the signs and symptoms, how it is treated medically versus surgically, and what's the role of physiotherapy within helping our patients who have endometriosis. Or again, if you are a patient or you are suffering with endometriosis, the kind of approaches that we may take as physiotherapists. Michelle is brilliant. She talks about the role of exercise within endometriosis, but also that integrative or functional medicine approach and how diet can influence our hormones and how even as physios, we still have a role in educating people about how to eat a healthy diet and not just a healthy diet but again how there are specific things within the food that we're eating that may contribute to some of the symptoms with endometriosis. So I had a blast talking to her and I really hope you guys enjoy this. If you're liking these episodes please give it a review. You can find the way to review through the search tab on the bottom right hand side of the podcast Um, application on your iPhone and if you go into search put the pelvic health podcast once you've got that pulled up there's a little tab that says reviews and then you can leave the number of stars as well as a comment okay everyone welcome back to the pelvic health podcast we have Michelle Lyons all the way from Scotland no haha kidding (laughs) it's Ireland isn't it 
<laughs> yes, it is Ireland this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so Michelle's coming to talk to us today all about endometriosis. So I've been very excited. I've been wanting to do a podcast on this for so long and who better to have but you. So um, can you actually oh, give you. us a bit of a a bit of a background on how you got into uh, educating yourself and falling in love with knowing everything about endometriosis? (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I would never claim to know everything about anything, but endometriosis is, is a topic that I did stumble into because, you know, in my work with women with pelvic pain, what I found is that women who have endometriosis are very much sent from pillar to post. You know, the average time to diagnosis, you know, in the literature, they estimated somewhere between five and 12 years that numerous different practitioners, you know, are seen before they achieve an accurate diagnosis. Because the thing with endometriosis is you can't really depend on ultrasound or MRI or other imaging. The the gold standard for diagnosis is going to be laparoscopic exploration. So you need a skilled surgeon who's going to go in and spend the time to look around because typically, you know, we read about endometriosis presenting in that rectouterine pouch, you know, what we used to call the pouch of Douglas uh, between the uterus and the rectum. But the endometriosis implants can spread anywhere in the abdominal pelvic cavity. We have reports in the literature about it attaching to the diaphragm, to the sciatic nerve, to the liver. There are even some reports where it will end up in the brain. You know, so it can really take a skilled clinician to diagnose it. And the other issue with endometriosis is that when a woman is finally accurately diagnosed and then she has gold standard treatment, which is going to be laparoscopic excision of the adhesions, she's still often left in a lot of pain. And, you know, well, you've had the you've had the excision, you've had the excision surgery. Why are you still in pain? It must be in your head. You know, we we can't do anything else for you. What happens is the body adapts to this chronic exposure to pain and develops these protective strategies, overactivity in the pelvic floor, guarding in the abdominal wall, um, you know, really moving away from participating in exercise or lifestyle. It can affect sexual function. It can affect fertility. It can affect your ability to stay in school, to stay in education, because, you know, if you're missing a couple of days of school every month, you know, or university or work, what does that do on a socioeconomic level? So the the ripples of endometriosis are absolutely huge for a disease, for a condition that affects 10 to 15 percent of women worldwide. Unilaterally, you know, there's no specific ethnic or social group that it affects more than any other. We really don't do enough to support these women through diagnosis, but certainly after treatment. So I really feel like the gold standard for treatment should be, yes, laparoscopic excision, good clean margins like we talk about in cancer treatment, but then follow up pelvic rehab and a pelvic rehab approach that is obviously going to look at pelvic floor function and dysfunction, but will also take into account bladder issues, bowel issues, sexual health, fertility, pain management a return to exercise, lifestyle integration, because we know there's, there's a, there can be a strong food component with endometriosis symptoms. And I really think that as physios, we're in a great position to help these women because who else in the medical community has all these seemingly disparate skill sets and who can put maybe an orthopedic or musculoskeletal hat on as well? Because just because you have endometriosis doesn't mean you can't also have 
lumbopelvic dysfunction or pudendal neuralgia or other issues. So we might be one of the first clinicians to put a lot of different pictures together and really help women not only advocate for themselves to seek accurate diagnosis and treatment, but also to help them return to living well after treatment, after surgical or medical treatment has ended. Wow, I feel like we can end the podcast right there. <laughs> that was excellent. Um, can you? Can we take a step back and maybe sure. explain exactly what endometriosis is? You know, it's still a bit of a mystery. That's what endometriosis is. We know, again, that it affects an enormous amount of women worldwide. It's defined usually as the growth of endometri- endometrial-like tissue outside the uterus. It's not an identical to endometrial tissue, but it is very similar to it. It has a lot of different, um, pro- the same similar properties. But the thing is, if that endometrial tissue grows outside the uterus, it has your body has a very limited, you know, avenue to eliminate it. So we end up with a lot of adhesions between the different visceral structures. We can end up with a lot of visceral deformity in there. I had one patient who went in for excision of her endometriosis and okay, so how's this for a nociceptive input? Her surgeon told her it was as if somebody had poured cement into her abdomen and pelvis. So of course she comes out of surgery absolutely freaked out, you know, I mean, terrible language to use. But unfortunately that is some of the surgical reality that women with endometriosis can can face. We don't know what causes it. We know that it's very much fueled by estrogen. So it's very hormone dependent. Um, There are some theories that could it be, you know, some sort of retrograde uh, menstruation. But honestly, we don't know. We really don't know. Um, We're we're learning more about genetic predispositions. But honestly, um, I think the focus right now should be on appropriate treatment. First of all, yes, we want to find out what causes it. We want to find out what can ameliorate it, you know, in terms of avoiding certain food groups and, you know, adding in certain, you know, vitamins and supplements. But let's really focus now on treating these women better than they have been treated up until now, because I think they're really, really underserved. And the message for a lot of women and young girls has been that, you know, well, periods are supposed to be normal. Uh, Painful periods are supposed to be normal. Sorry. And in fact, that's the hashtag of the Endometriosis Foundation. It's like hashtag killer cramps are not normal because we shouldn't have women and girls disabled by their menstrual period for three, four, five days every month. And the thing with endo is as well, it can start off as cyclical pain that it's just associated with your period. But when it goes on for long enough, that pain becomes constant. And it's not just period pain. It can be low back pain. It could be rectal pain. It can be digestive disturbances, you know, constipation, diarrhea, rectal bleeding, It can be uh, bladder dysfunction as well. So Maurice Chung is an American surgeon who specializes with endometriosis, and he talks about the evil triplets of pelvic pain. So endometriosis, interstitial cystitis and pudendal neuralgia, because the three of them like to travel together. So, again, I think as pelvic health physios, we are in a great position to to help these women, you know, traverse this minefield potentially because what does a urologist know about pudendal neuralgia what does a colorectal specialist you know know about hormonally driven you know disorders but i think bringing our the combination of our musculoskeletal and our pelvic health 
expertise into the into the table and almost, you know, really steering the other members of ideally the multidisciplinary team, um, we can really play a huge role in helping these women. Um, so other than the heavy bleeding and some of those other symptoms that you mentioned, what mm-hmm. what are the other telltale signs? Like if people are listening to this and they're like, oh, I wonder if that's what I have. What are some yeah. other yeah telltale, like the gold standard symptoms? So the, the classic signs would be very painful periods, you know, and then that pain can progress to being constant rather than just cyclic. Um, deep dyspareunia, so pain with deep penetration, Again, particularly in certain positions, because if you have a lot of those um, endometriosis adhesions or growths in that rectouterine pouch with deeper penetration, that's going to be painful. Um, painful defecation, difficulty getting pregnant, uh, rectal pain or bleeding. You can have pain with ovulation, uh, pain during or after orgasm. Fatigue is a huge issue for a lot of these women as well. Um, constipation, diarrhea. So you can see it's a very broad, you know, basket of potential symptoms. And I think that's one of the reasons why women struggle to get an accurate diagnosis. Well, is it PCOS? Is it fibromyalgia? You know, is it just, you know, have a glass of wine and relax, you know, have some ibuprofen, take some NSAIDs for, you know, go on the birth control pill to manage your periods. And that delay in diagnosis can lead to really significant effects in terms of obviously pain and quality of life, but also fertility, because the longer the adhesions have to build up within the pelvic cavity, the more compromised the structures can become. I know one particular woman who's who's been through this journey with endometriosis, the adhesions were so bad that she ended up with ovarian torsion and ended up losing that ovary. Extraordinarily painful journey to get to the surgery, yeah. but someone who's already got compromised fertility and has now lost one ovary and delayed diagnosis. You can just see how it's a perfect storm. And so a lot of these women have to have to also deal with a lot of anger and frustration and sadness because this is not the life they thought they would have. They had this vision, you know, by a certain age, they'd be married, they'd have a couple of kids, they'd have, you know, the, the, the nuclear family. And endometriosis and the lack of a timely diagnosis and treatment takes all that away. And it's it's something that I think we need to shine a light on, because, again, as pelvic physios, we're working with a lot of women with chronic pelvic pain. And we might be the first person to maybe put those pictures together and say, you know, has your doctor ever talked to you about this or pick up the phone and say, what do you think? Could it be? Would you consider, you know, going in laparoscopically and having a look and and really advocating for our patients and helping them advocate for themselves as well, I think is really important. Yeah. Now, was there not, I thought there was some research where they explored endometriosis symptoms. And when they went in, there was still a certain amount of people who had all the telltale signs, but they didn't find any endometriosis. Or am I making this yeah, up? So there, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I can't remember no, the details. It depends on the diagnostic procedures being used. So imaging like ultrasound and MRI can give false negatives. So laparoscopic exploration is regarded as the gold standard, but it needs to be a surgeon who's A, very skilled with endometriosis, and B, is willing to spend the time in there to to make sure that you're looking behind organs, you're checking out, you know, the, the different areas. 
because if you're just going in with the scope and you're having a quick look around, don't see anything, not seeing those typical, you know, they're called chocolate cysts sometimes because they're they're just dark and brown and nasty. If they don't see those, they're thinking, oh, okay, no endometriosis here. Um, so it really is dependent on the skill of whoever's performing the, the laparoscopic exploration. But there is a large amount of, a large number of women who are told, you know, Painful periods are normal. We don't. We didn't see anything on ultrasound or MRI. Therefore, there's nothing wrong with you, you know. And it's so frustrating and adds another layer of suffering to to this journey through endometriosis. And you know, it's almost bittersweet then in a couple of years when they finally get that accurate diagnosis. Uh, for all those times they were told, you know, no, there's nothing there. You know, we, we, we don't see anything. Therefore, there mustn't be anything wrong with you. It must be psychogenic. And it's um, it's it's a really interesting, you know, aspect of, you know, the biopsychosocial approach that we're, we're all embracing, particularly in pelvic health, because that frustration and that anger can often manifest in very, very short, tight, angry pelvic floor muscles, abdominal muscles, so as, you know, all those deep muscles that have such a huge emotional overlay to them as well in terms of stress and anxiety. And um, I think sometimes one of the greatest uh, benefits that we can provide is as physios, we have time to spend with our patients. We can sit down and we can, um, as my friend Jessica Drummond will say, you know, we can hold space for them to let that out, to, to just to let them vent a little bit, to tell them that they're not bonkers. It's not all in their head. It's a very real physical condition. And and then to give them the tools to move forward and start rebuilding their lives. Um, I think it's we're in a very privileged position to do that. Yeah. So what happens then when they do have surgery and they take the endometriosis out and they're still mm -hmm. left with pain? So what now is driving the pain? Well, so just before we talk about that, I do want to say that unfortunately still a lot of women are offered hysterectomy as a treatment for endometriosis, which is shocking still in this day and age, because the thing with endometriosis is the, the implants themselves that spread, they can actually continue to produce their own estrogen. So what we have to really move away from that medical surgical model that instead of using drugs like Lupron or birth control pills to mask the symptoms, or instead of just taking out the entire organ rather than focusing on eliminating the disease, we really want to ensure that our patients are being are working with surgeons who who know about endometriosis, because an endometriosis surgery, you know, again coming back to to Chong and he's written a number of papers about this. He says it can be more the surgery to remove endometriosis adhesions can be more complex than pelvic or abdominal cancer surgery. So you're looking for somebody who's got expertise, not only in endometriosis, but also bladder, bowel, peritoneal exploration. If they still have pain moving forward, you know, apart from the normal post-op pain, you know, the bloating that you'd expect after laparoscopic exploration, um, this is where pelvic rehab really comes into its own, I think, because if you're in constant abdominal or pelvic pain, we know where our pelvic floor muscles going, are going to go. They're going to that guarding, overactive, tense, short, tight positioning. So this is where we have a role to play in using our manual therapy skills, our biopsychosocial interventions, but also our exercise prescription 
and our lifestyle um, advice as well to really help women start moving from being passive recipients of things being done to them towards active participants in their own recovery and giving them those tools as well. So down training the pelvic floor, releasing, you know, any tension that they're holding, even unwittingly between the diaphragm, the abdominal wall and the pelvic floor, moving towards exercise again. So I'm really passionate about that return to exercise, um, particularly exercise systems that are going to be very focused on lengthening and strengthening because they're usually all scrunched up, particularly in that front line. Um, so we want to make sure that, you know, certain Pilates exercises are fantastic. Yoga has been shown to be really beneficial. And I think possibly because of the combination of breath work and the, the strengthening and flexibility work of the asana poses, but also that space that you can create and the grounding and the strengthening aspect of it as well. But even cardiovascular wise, you know, if a woman has had, um, say she's had a hysterectomy as part of her treatment for um, endometriosis, if she's had her ovaries removed, we know then that her risk of death from a cardiovascular event is elevated significantly. Bone health has to be dealt with as well. Because estrogen is that, it's really like throwing petrol on the fire for endometriosis. So a lot of the medical treatments are focused on dampening down estrogen, which plunges women into a fairly harsh and aggressive menopause type situation. So again, we have a huge role to play there as well. But for me, it's about, this is where we are now. Okay, what are your biggest problems? What would success look like to you? And let's work on this together to come up with some goals. But my goals are always going to be to have you resuming activity, getting back into your life again. Let's talk about bladder function. Let's talk about bowel. Let's talk about sexual <coughs> health. Let's talk about fertility because there's, great, there's good research coming out about the role of manual therapy um, with fertility enhancement, particularly mechanical infertility. But at the end of the day, we know that the foundations for good health are going to be nutrition, mindset, stress management and exercise. And that that's really our wheelhouse as physios, you know, particularly the manual therapy and the exercise aspects of it again. So returning women to activity is a big part of, of what I like to focus on. Is there any specific activities you don't want them to get back to or you think aren't appropriate for them? Or is it just depends yeah. on the person? It, it always depends on the person, but I find generally a sweeping generalization. Exercises that focus on a lot of concentric shortening of muscles, so like sit-ups and crunches, hmm. might not be the best initial strategy for these women. Again, I'm very much focused on that kind of lengthening, strengthening approach. So definitely we want to have a, a cardiovascular element and a strengthening element but flexibility is is usually the foundation that I will start on because it's usually very compromised because of that chronic guarded position that a lot of these women will have where they're they're in that protective kind of crunched over arms folded across their lower abdomen and pelvis position. So to try and open up the front of their bodies to actually to get them to trust their bodies again is a big part because part of the anger that they can have is that sense that their bodies have betrayed them. And they can become very dissociated from their own bodies from from the neck down. So to try and use maybe slower, more flexibility based exercise systems um, is a great way for them to start trusting their body, but actually kind of making friends with their body again and and forgiving themselves 
and kind of, you know, getting ready to move forward together. So you're really kind of not to sound all woo woo, but you're 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 trying to really integrate body and mind and um, and help them live peacefully with themselves. Yeah. And like you said, a lot, most of these women, um, it's been a period of time that they've suffered through this and have probably gone through some periods where it's been misdiagnosed. So it's not often that they've only had it for a few months. It's something they've had for a period of time. So how much inactivity and guarding and protection, like how long has that been going on? Well, you know, I think as well as that, we have to look at, you know, in a situation where we have direct access, where we are primary care providers, you know, patients are coming in off the street to see us directly. um, We have to be able to differentiate between musculoskeletal pain and maybe something that could be endometriosis. Now, if it affects 10 to 15 percent of all women worldwide, the chances are that we will come across this. People generally come to see a physio because they're in pain. Um, There was an interesting case study that Troyer did in 2007 where a woman um, was referred for back pain with some sciatic pain and wasn't responding as you would expect, you know, mechanically to the testing and to the treatment. And so this therapist actually followed through and it turned out she had endometriosis and it was affecting lumbopelvic function. So she was referred with back pain but it was driven by endometriosis. So it really is something that I think if we're seeing patients on that direct access level, we do need to have as a differential diagnosis, you know, particularly if the pain was initially cyclic, but remember that not everybody will have that cyclic aspect. It could be constant pain. So if someone is coming in with pain that isn't responding as you would expect mechanically, you know, and it's just not, there's just that little voice that's saying there's something not right here, just maybe to start having endometriosis as a differential with your female pain patients. Are there any good questions that maybe musculoskeletal or fitness professionals can ask if they've got a patient who's, you know, that has back pain and they're doing this exercise and they're seeing another physio or maybe not seeing anyone mm. at all and they, whether they suspect or they're not sure if they should suspect, is there any general questions that they can ask? I always think so whenever i'm presenting to um to non-pelvic health physios like to to their musculoskeletal colleagues you know we we talk about how do you screen for pelvic floor dysfunction generally and because you know um sometimes with our ortho or sports colleagues you know they will ask the screening question so any issues with your bowel or bladder and in their head they're going please say no please say no please say no so we don't have to talk about this anymore so I find something as as simple as the Australian pelvic floor questionnaire, just to have that as part of your intake. I adore it. I mean, it was validated by Ayuga in 2012. It covers bowel, bladder, prolapse and sexual questions. Sometimes women will find it easier to to just to tick a, a check mark on a written questionnaire rather than bringing it up in conversation. So I think that can be a good screening tool. I would ask about menstrual history. I would, you know, if that pain is not responding within a session or two in a way that you would expect it to, then to be able to ask about pelvic floor dysfunction, you know, about difficulty with bowel movements, you know, what sort of of bowel patterns do you have? Are you having a bowel movement every day? Is it painful? You know, whip out the Bristol stool scale and let's talk about that. Is there ever any blood in your stool? You know, a big red flag for a number of different issues. 
But what I think that we need to do as as pelvic health physios is really take the embarrassment and the shame and the, the freaking out about asking pelvic health questions of normal patients and take that away from, from the general population of physios as well, because the pelvic, you and I know that the pelvic floor is responsible for everything anyway, of you know, so obviously, but it's to empower our colleagues to ask about, ask these questions and then to know what to do with the answers. And, you know, whether we're talking about other physios or fit pros or anybody who's working with women, I would just love to see endometriosis and all types of pelvic floor dis- dysfunction, you know, on the radar instead of, you know, oh, pain with sex is normal. Oh, painful periods are normal. Oh, everybody leaks after they've had a couple of kids. You know, you just don't go on trampolines anymore. So I think it it fits into that whole normalization of talking about pelvic floor dysfunction and taking away the embarrassment from us as clinicians. Because again, in our position as physios, because we're working with patients and it's usually the same physio and we're seeing them a number of times for an extended length of time compared to say our medical colleagues, we have this opportunity to build up that rapport of trust. So if we can ask the questions, you know, we're actually far more likely to maybe get those honest answers uh, from our patients than possibly a medical colleague who maybe only has seven or 10 minutes to, to, you know, to conduct a whole appointment with them. So I think, I think we as a profession are very lucky in that regard, but I think sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And for a condition that affects 10 to 15% of women worldwide, we don't know enough about endometriosis particularly a condition like endo that can present as musculoskeletal dysfunction. So I think, you know, just to focus on the fact that pain is never normal and to always screen for pelvic dysfunction, be it bladder, bowel or sexual health. So I would encourage everybody to use the the Australian pelvic floor questionnaire as part of their screening. Yeah, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes Mm -hmm. so that people can find it or have it if, if they don't. This podcast is sponsored by Pelvic Floor Exercise. Pelvic Floor Exercise is Australia's trusted online pelvic floor store bringing together the very best pelvic floor rehabilitation products available on the market to make choosing and buying easy and discreet. Backed by the clinical knowledge and medical buying experience of the owners, husband and wife team, Fiona and Craig Rogers, you are assured of quality and excellent customer service. Secondary to product sales, the website has an ever-growing resource section for both customers and health professionals, as well as a strong social media presence, fulfilling Fiona's extreme passion for educating and helping men and women with pelvic health issues. So check out www.pelvicfloorexercise.com.au. Now, so you've mentioned that endometriosis has a big um, basis from hormone dysregulation so Mm -hmm. and it being estrogen as the main driver can you talk a little bit more about how the hormones are feeding it and what we can do about it so you know I think a lot of us will be familiar with the concept of hormonally driven cancers you know particularly breast cancer and we know that one of the the aspects of breast cancer treatment that is um estrogen driven will be to remove estrogen from the mix. So we have, you know, drugs like tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors. A common medical strategy for dealing with endometriosis has in the past, hopefully less so now, been using medications like 
Lupron or Lucrin, as it's called in Australia, to really suppress pituitary function and to decrease the production of estrogen. And the hope is that that's going to actually slow down the progression of endometriosis, maybe put in a little bit of a holding pattern. And in theory, that's fine. But you have to look at what happens downstream from using these medications to to disrupt hormonal function. Um, the side effects from Lupron are scary, to be honest. It was originally developed as part of the treatment armament for prostate cancer. So while it does shut down um, ovarian function and estrogen production, the side effects are a little bit scary in terms of memory loss, uh, pain in muscles, joints, bone loss. I'm really concerned about with uh, with long-term Lupron use because what we're seeing in some of the literature and in some of the support groups of women who've been put on Lupron particularly is that those side effects don't necessarily reverse after you come off the drug. Mm-hmm. So it's like putting uh, a Band-Aid on a situation instead of actually dealing with the problem. What we do know is that the endometriosis implants themselves can also produce estrogen. So that can be a continued driver for dysfunction as well. And that's why hysterectomy is not a good treatment option for endometriosis. Um, We know that if we support women's uh, liver function, if we can watch their exposure to what we call xenoestrogens in the environment, so plasticides, uh, plastics, pesticides, uh, environmental pollution, what they're putting on their skin as well as putting in their body. So things that have parabens or phthalates that are known endocrine disruptors. None of these will substitute for laparoscopic excision of the endometriosis. But um, I have a friend, Tracy Donegan, and she's a midwife. And she always says, control the controllables. Oh, my God. My so, husband says that all the time. And I use it now. There you go. It's such a good, I mean, you know, I think it's a really empowering saying for for these women because anything you have control over, so let's minimize your exposure to these xenoestrogens. Let's make sure we've got a good liver supportive lifestyle because your liver is really important in terms of detoxing that excess estrogen that you can have. What can we do to facilitate good bowel function? Because that's another way that we can eliminate um, excess estrogen as well. And we know that constipation and diarrhea are a really common feature of endometriosis. Um, You know, a lot of women in the endometriosis support groups talk about endo belly. They they can get really, really bloated after a meal. Lots of women find that if they go dairy free um, and or gluten free, that can really help reduce their symptoms because we're reducing that inflammatory load. Does that include sugar as well? Oh, absolutely. Sugar is, yeah. Inflammatory. It's really important, though, just to point out that although the dietary changes and the lifestyle changes can help reduce the symptoms, we would still encourage women to have that laparoscopic excision because of the adhesions and the possible compromise to fertility. So it's a big picture overview that we want to have. You know, there there are studies showing that having green tea can really help slow down the progression of endometriosis. Would I suggest that somebody has three or four cups of green tea instead of having laparoscopic excision? No. But maybe as well as, you know, as part of this, you know, controlling the controllables approach that we want to have. So it's important that we look at the different aspects of how the endometriosis is manifesting as well. Is it bladder dysfunction? Is it bowel dysfunction? 
Is it sexual dysfunction? What's their main manifestation of the symptoms? And what can we do specifically with that from a sexual dysfunction point of view? Do we need to talk about different types of lubricant? Do we need to talk about sexual ergonomics? You know, maybe positions where there isn't going to be as deep a penetration um, that's going to irritate adhesions that are already there. But again, if we don't talk about this, I mean, who else is going to talk to these women about sexual ergonomics? Hmm. You know, I know sex therapists and sex counselors are out there and they do amazing work. But we as physios are also licensed to touch. And I think that's kind of what sets us apart. And the sexual health and fertility aspects of endometriosis are really, really key in in delivering that kind of full spectrum service to women who are going through endo. Well, I think like and you pointed out at the very beginning that as physios, we can address a lot of these extra little things like a little bit of the dietary side, you know, like oh. it's yes, we want them to go see a dietitian and see a sexual counselor yep. and see all these other people. But often it's taken them so long to find someone to then find the finances and the time to see all these yep. other people if if we have that knowledge of being able to help them with sub, you know, kind of like a GP, like all these extra little yeah. areas that are still within our scope, then, you know, that's been so much better for them. Well, exactly. And I'm not saying that, you know, as physios, we are the one-stop shop, you know, but I think if we're going to particularly be talking about bladder and bowel dysfunction, you have to look at what's going in one end of the tube, what's being absorbed, and then also what's being eliminated. Because if we're just looking at defecation or elimination, we're missing we're missing some of the picture here. Because so for so many women, particularly those who've had the excision surgery, and it's gone really well, and there was clean margins, but they still have the the endo belly, the bloating, they still have the pain with urination. Oftentimes, it's in our toolbox you know well can we differentiate is it because they're drinking um a certain type of herbal tea that's irritating their bladder or is it actually pelvic floor dysfunction they've just got some dyssynergia there we know that the two main drivers of constipation are slow transit and pelvic floor dyssynergia and there was a there was an interesting paper i think it was binford in 2009 showing that if the pelvic floor dyssynergia is addressed that can often improve the transit time through the bowel as well but you know something as simple as saying to the patient so you know tell me about what you eat typically you know, do a little food diary for a couple of days and let's track your symptoms with that not that we want patients to catastrophize or become overly anxious about what they're eating but wouldn't it be interesting if we can say well look when you ate this sandwich and you had pasta and you had cereal that day the next day you had a flare-up in your bloating, in your abdominal pain, in your diarrhea. So, you know, there are all sorts of fancy tests that dietitians and nutritionists will do in terms of blood tests and breath tests, but the gold standard is still an elimination diet. You know, take something away, you know, take it out, say take gluten away for three weeks and see how you feel. Just take one thing away, take it out for three weeks, see how you feel add it back in for three days. Do you feel better, worse or the same, you know, but just doing it one thing at a time like that. And it, it's really important that if you're asking somebody to remove something from their life, that you provide them with an alternative. So say if they're having, you know, cereal in the morning, a sandwich at lunchtime and pasta for dinner. Okay, so what could you have in the morning? Could you have 
maybe eggs or an avocado in the morning? Could you use lettuce leaves as a wrap for your sandwich? Could you spiralize some courgettes, you know, for your dinner? You know, I mean, there's probably as many cookbooks in my office as there are physio books because we have to not just give abstract suggestions. Oh, like, yeah, maybe you should eliminate gluten. It's like, well, here, could you try this instead? You know, or here's a good website or here's a good cookbook. Maybe have a look at this instead and just give them like really simple, doable things to st again start taking control because we want to make our patients uh, back. We want to make sure that they're back in control of their situation to give them some power, but also to give them some responsibility as well. So we're not swooping in to fix them. You know, we're showing them how to help themselves. Which is funny because I think a lot of physios feel like that's outside of their scope. And as in being able to advise on food, which then when you think of like the personal training business inside of things, they're oh, always creating yeah. meal plans. I'm like, it's yeah. more within our scope, I feel. Absolutely. Well, like you know, and I'm not talking about like prescribing supplements or yeah. different vitamins. I'm talking about broccoli, you know, maybe Simple making sure that your are eating cooked broccoli instead of raw broccoli, things yeah. like that. But Honestly, I think if we're going to hold on to bladder and bowel health as part of our scope, then if you don't have that education or training, then you need to go out and get it. Because I think particularly from a pelvic health point of view, you've got to look at the two ends of the tube and so see what's going in and how they're dealing with it. What's one of your favorite cookbooks? Ooh, one I am really liking at the minute is James Wong's Superfoods. And it's great because he's an ethnobotanist. And what he does is he looks at, you know, relatively normal foods, you know, so we're not talking ACI berries or spirulina. He's looking at things like sweet potatoes or red onions. And he's talking about how to maximize the bioavailability of their nutrients. Like there are different ways to cook these vegetables that are going to maximize their availability. Um, and the fact that it's all evidence-based and science-based, and you can quote all the references for this, really appeals to the, the nerd in me as well. But I think, you know, having something like that in the office where you can say, oh, look, so what about this? Could you try this recipe? You know, maybe instead of the pasta, could you bake some sweet potatoes and have that on the side as well? Because we know that that, you know, classic Mediterranean diet, very heavy on the vegetables, the fruits, the oily fish, um, maybe the odd glass of wine is, you know, it's very anti-inflammatory, you know, and I think as well, it, it can really help redefine that relationship with food as well. So food actually becomes a source of pleasure again, rather than an obligation or something to be feared, you know, and really, I, I think, you know, you can go back as far as Hippocrates, where he talks about, you know, let your food be your medicine. I think we're learning more and more you know, about the medicinal properties of certain foods. We know that, you know, lowering a woman with endometriosis who lowers her omega-6 intake, so maybe eases off on her consumption of red meat and ups her omega-3 intake, nuts, seeds, oily fish, she's going to have less symptoms. So making that really practical and applicable for normal people and giving them the tools to do that, I think is a great way of handing them back some power over their own lives again, particularly, again, as you've said, if they've been shunted around from practitioner to practitioner, not getting satisfactory answers or treatment for this, this can really be a great way that they can start taking charge of their own health again. So 
being a nerdy research lover, there's some research behind this side of things for endometriosis. Absolutely. So what I'll do is I'm going to send you over a list of references uh, looking at this. And it's it's really exciting for for me to see this kind of coming through in the research now, because for a long time, you know, nutrition was kind of, you know, poo pooed, I think, a lot in in the hard science world. But what we're learning more and more now, especially, you know, if we look at the opposite, where we're, we're pretty much coming to the end game in terms of antibiotic effectiveness, we're starting to see more and more that, yes, what we eat really can have an effect in either worsening your disease status or improving it. And I think particularly in the Western world, in Europe, in North America, in Australia, where we're looking at obesity levels soaring and that also that parallel soar in the rate of oh, inflammation driven dis- disorders like uh, cancer and heart disease and arthritis and dementia and diabetes. We have to start taking responsibility for our food intake and how we're preparing it. But it's evidence based medicine because the evidence is there, uh, not only for endometriosis, but for for pretty much all of the chronic disease states that that we're really looking at reaching epidemic levels, I think, um, in in these current times. And with obesity, isn't there, it doesn't adipose tissue have some estrogen? Yeah. I can't yeah, remember yeah, yeah. what it is. Something. So particularly Help abdominal me. fat. Yeah. <laughs> so abdominal fat, um, which is very much driven by that cortisol stress response, um, that can become just a factory for producing like a toxic type of estrogen. So we see that in women going through breast cancer, they're put on aromatase inhibitors because aromatase is is that pathway for converting belly fat. And I'm simplifying it here, but it basically it converts belly fat into toxic estrogen, which can drive estrogen driven disorders like endometriosis, like breast cancer, like other gynae cancers. So we also know that visceral fat, you know, that fat around the middle is a huge driver for inflammatory conditions like diabetes, like heart disease. And the thing is that whenever I give a talk to normal and by normal, I mean, non-physio women um, and I ask them, you know, what's the biggest risk in terms of, you know, death to women? Almost every woman will say, well, breast cancer, you know. So the thing is that one in eight women in the Western world over their lifetime will be diagnosed with breast cancer. One in 36 women will die of it. But one in two women will die of a cardiovascular event, particularly after menopause. That protective effect of estrogen, our risk of a heart attack actually levels off with that of men. But women don't do as well with treatment for a heart attack because we're starting off with a smaller microvasculature to begin with. So the standard tests and the standard treatments don't work as well for women. And we don't present with the same symptoms of a heart attack. So for women, they can maybe get the chest pain, but they might get jaw pain. They might get upper thoracic pain. They might get anxiety or insomnia. So they're far more likely to be written off as an affective disorder if they present to hospital or to a casualty department with these symptoms and give an anti-anxiety medication or an antidepressant or told to go home and have a glass of wine when they're actually having an MI. So it's really important that we understand how our hormonal health really for women affects everything. I mean, estrogen has about 400 different functions in the female body, but particularly when it comes to things like cardiac health, bone health, brain health, uh, and endometriosis, 
we have to we really have to be hormone aware if we're going to be working at a serious level in women's health. And that would be pretty important too in young girls because you said endometriosis affects does it it doesn't affect women before they get their period. It generally it will manifest, you know, between, you know, in the teens and the the early 20s. That's when we we see a real spike in it, but it's usually with the onset of their period particularly women who have an early onset of menarche um, and who maybe defer having children because it's all about that lifetime exposure to estrogen as well. Mm. Um, So endometriosis used to be known as a disease of white professional women because, you know, typically those are the women who would put off having children um, until later life and then the fertility issues came up. But also maybe these are the women who had the financial means to go for further investigation and then have their endometriosis diagnosed. But we do know that endometriosis is an equal opportunity disease and it can affect women from any socioeconomic class. But estrogen really is, it's, it is, it's like throwing petrol on the fire with endometriosis. So supporting your body's natural pathways for getting rid of that excess estrogen is really, really important. So, it, you know, good bowel health is absolutely vital. And was there a connection, like if you, is there a genetic connection if you have and have had or have endometriosis and you have a child, a, a girl or a daughter, are they more likely to have it? There seems to be, it, it depends on the papers that you're reading. There seems to be, if your mother or your aunts have it, there is some familial link to it as well. But there's also, you know, some research going on in terms of the epigenetics of it, how those genes are actually expressed. So, you know, I love this subject. (laughs) We could do a whole other podcast. (laughs) So, you know, a lot of this, you know, we can get really, really esoteric with the science of it. But I think we can also get really, really simple with it as well, because all epigenetics really comes down to is how are you living your life in terms of the stress your body and its genes are exposed to and how do they manifest because, you know, you're, is it, you know, is it nature or nurture? Is your biology always your destiny? And I think we have enough studies looking at identical twins who have different lifestyles growing up to realize that we do have a certain amount of control over how our genes are actually expressed. And that can be both terrifying, but also exciting because it means that we have the power, but we also have some responsibility. That's it. Responsibility is hard. It's easier to it just blame your genetics yeah. for something yeah. rather or than... Or take a pill, yes. you know, or take a pill or have the surgery. But it really, you know, I think lifestyle medicine, you know, what we're now calling functional medicine, I think it is kind of the way of the future, um, that we're moving away less from that patriarchal doctor as mechanic coming in, or physio as mechanic coming in to fix you versus here's what you need to do to live a healthier life. And here's here's your part in it as well, because I think that every woman, every patient should be, you know, leading her healthcare team. So there's a lot, you know, there's never been a better time, I think, to work in women's health, you know, in terms of the education that's available to us, both online and live. But I really think that there's a lot of bad information out there as well. And if we are going to be, again, direct access healthcare practitioners, we need to know the science behind it as well what's good information what's not good information and then how can we translate that into everyday application for our patients
and motivate them to do it. Because one of the big things that I struggled with when I was a baby physio was, you know, but why won't you do your exercises? You know, why, you know, don't you want to get better? And, you know, I think it's when you when you turn 40, it's like somebody flips that switch. But, you know, I went to a couple of different courses and, you know, really, again, looking at that biopsychosocial model, you can't want it more than your patient does. You can't do it for them. You can give them the tools, you can motivate them, you can educate them, but at the end of the day, they have to be willing to step up as well and do the work. So is there anything else that you wanted to add or any kind of summary regarding endometriosis that you just really want people to remember? I would just say be aware have it as a differential diagnosis, um, not only for your pelvic pain patients, but also for your musculoskeletal patients, you know, the low back pain patients, the sciatic patients that are just not doing well. Have it on your radar, screen for pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, Don't be afraid to reach out uh, to their medical practitioner, to their primary care and say, I'm just concerned about this patient. Have you ever considered endometriosis? You know, if she's had ultrasounds or MRIs and they've been negative, maybe advocate for them to to pursue a laparoscopic uh, exploration and just see what's going on in there. Because at the end of the day, pain is never normal. Uh, Painful periods are not normal. And I think there's a lot of women who are missing out on a lot of chances at life, um, both socially, economically, fertility wise, uh, relationship wise that are really driven by that slow diagnosis of endometriosis. And I think if we have the privilege of spending time with patients, that we need to be aware of endo, but we also need to help patients advocate for themselves or advocate for them if they can't. Lovely. Um, Do you have any online courses that people can do? Well, there's an... Introduction to endometriosis that I did for Medbridge Education. Um, so if you go to Medbridge Education, that's it's just an hour-long course. It's just an overview. I will be doing um, a presentation on endometriosis at Woman on Fire in the UK next April. And we also have the lovely Fiona Rogers coming over to talk about electrotherapy and vaginal weights and all sorts of good things. I'll be teaching the Advanced Women's Health course in Bath in England in September, and I will be teaching it as part of the Special Topics course in New Hampshire in the States at the end of October. So you can find the U.S. dates and details at HermanWallace.com. So you have a lot going on this year. Busy girl. Busy 2017. Girl. And when did, any plans for 2018 with courses? There's a lot of things in the works. So Anything uh yeah, some dates coming up. Well, um, if you go to my website, all the details will be there. But um, the big thing that I'm focusing on for 2018 at this time would be the Woman on Fire in the UK that I run with uh, Jenny Burrell every year. So it's multidisciplinary. If you're working in women's health, uh, that's really where we're focusing. Um, Jenny and I worked with Jessica Drummond to do the Third Age online course. That's all about menopausal health and bone health and heart health and all sorts of good things. So I'll put all the information on the website and I'll send you a link. That is excellent. Thank you so much for coming on and playing. Pleasure. (laughs) Nerding out. (laughs) 